You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hi, Fred Long here. Welcome to our reading group of Ephesians. And I thought we'd just start right at the beginning. It's always appropriate to ask questions. We'll work on pronunciation. We're using a Koine era pronunciation. In, in my logo setup here, I've got the Greek text, UBS 5, NESB over to the right. To the bottom left, I have some uh, lexical lexical resources, BDAG, LSJ, Liddell, Scott Jones, which is the classical lexicon, which is outdated, which is being redone right now. And so, well, let's go ahead and, and, and pray. Father God, uh, we love you very much. I thank you for these students. And I uh, just pray that you would guide us in our uh, time together as we look at your word and uh, delve deeply into it and uh, help your spirit to me- mediate it uh, into our hearts and our lives. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen. So, Pavlos, Apostolos, Christu, Jesu, dia thelematos theu, tus agius, tus usin en Epheso, que pistus in Christo, Jesu. Karasumin ke Irene apotheo patros emon ke kuriu Jesu Christu. There's only one verb present, and it's not a main verb. It's a it's a par- participle, and uh, we'll we'll look at that in a moment. So Pavlos apostolos. So Paul apostle, and then you have two genitives, uh, Christu Jesu. Um, apostle of, belonging to, uh, Christ Jesus. And this is a uh, epistolary opening, so it's verbless. It may be implying writes, the verb writing, like graphi, like he's writing, or just, it's just a convention. So Paul, but we do have apposition. So right away, we learn about Paul by the abutting of the one noun to the next, that he is an apostle, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, what's what's interesting is that these are anarthrists, which means they have no article. Okay, and this becomes significant. In fact, there was uh, I just saw a book uh, by Summersu of Linguistics on the the use of the article in post classical Greek. And I think that's the name of the art of the book exactly. Or the article in post-classical Greek. I, I asked our, our, our library to order it. I'd be tempted to buy it myself, but I want to kind of see it first. But um, really important, Dan Wallace wrote his dissertation on the use of the article. And when it came to personal names, he was a bit baffled. He's like, I don't know what's going on. There's <laughs> like, there's all these kinds of rules. He tried to break it out. Uh, but there's another perspective that's coming to bear on this, and it has to do with information structure an activation, what's called activation status of the nouns. And uh, basically the rule are, is that when you're introducing a noun, particularly a proper noun, onto the stage, you do so without the article. That's, that's how you do it. And then when you refer back to that entity that's already on stage in the mental representation of the discourse, you use the article which is kind of like what's called an anaphoric referent, when it's pointing back to something that's known. It's called anaphoric, which is one article use is anaphoric use. Now, there are some exceptions to these. Um, sometimes the audience might be assumed to know the entity, so it has the article each time. Sometimes there's like little catchphrases that are similar to that. They're kind of like commonly known catchphrases, perhaps. Uh, and then the, the other kind of then rule is you introduce the person without the article, and then they typically have the article thereafter, unless they're doing something important. So then the removal of the article again could indicate stress on them, or in a long narrative, their reintroduction back into the scene, like if they've been away a while. (laughs) So, um, anyways, it's really it's really interesting the use of these articles, and I, I still, in terms of narrative, like I understand it pretty well. But when it comes to like argumentative discourse, it's I'm still like 
wrestling through it. So you might hear me wrestle through this as you work through this text, like try to ex explain like, now why is this article here? Why is it not here? So, well, let's, let's look. I mean, in fact, there's only, I'm, I'm only seeing one. I mean, isn't it interesting? I'm only, I'm only seeing two articles. Tus agus tus usin. And what's, what I find interesting about that is these are the recipients. Duh, of course they're known. <laughs> you know, so they're, they're, they're hearing it. So they're known to themselves. I mean, it's just kind of interesting psychologically that they have the article. So, uh, okay. So Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, of, of the Messiah Jesus. And I, I think it's always helpful to, when we, when we translate Christ, maybe even to translate it Messiah. Now, I know there's a different Greek word um, or a, a, trans, a transliteration that, that could have been used and maybe is found. But Christ is a translation uh, of, of anointed one. And maybe anointed one would be we be better, but the the main point is is just that this is like a title, and, and particularly a political title, the Jewish political figure. And again, there's just a lot to think about: <laughs> how and why did God reveal Himself in that way, and uh, particularly in Jesus. I mean, the the Messiah who is Jesus. Uh, so another apposition, apostle of the anointed one, namely Jesus. So this isn't like a personal name, like Jesus is his first name and then Christ is his last name. These are, you know, one's a title and one is uh, one is his name, Jesus. And so we often just kind of say them together and we forget that these are different words. And, um, and sometimes the manuscripts will switch these around in different places. So Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And they're probably, someone's probably written a dissertation on why that occurs. Or, or maybe needs to, uh, you know, is there just a slight implicature, like something slightly implied? So one discourse principle is that choice implies meaning. And so when you're switching the word order, there's, there's maybe a slight change in, in implication to that that's suited to that textual environment, to that context. So anyway, but that, that would need to be teased out at a pretty high level. Now, what kind of apostle is he, or what, what is the agency of that? It's dia. Dia thelematos theu. Through the will of God. And um, I find that interesting. So, dia uh, is indicating, um, when I think of dia with the genitive, it sometimes can be spatial to go through something, but that's not the first thing I think of. That's that's a rarer use. It, it, it does occur. But it, I think of um, mediacy, uh, intermediacy, agency. But dia often, it seems to me, and this has been noted by people, indicates an intermediate agency. So it's, it's not direct. It's often, you can often think of there's other things going on here. So through the will of God, he's an apostle through the will of God. Does that mean that he had no choice in the matter? Or is he a willing participant of God's will? And I think the dia, you know, leaves that open. Uh, it's not hupotheu, by God, uh, but, but through God's willing and wanting and Paul's responding. And that's important because it means that he has an authorization. I think... The fact that Paul identifies himself as a delegate, an apostle, right? That's another political term. This is official represent, representative. It carries authority. And uh, this authority comes by way of God's calling of him, his will even. And Paul understands that quite significantly. You know, Galatians, you know, likening himself to the prophet being set aside from his mother's womb. So that's pretty significant. And then you have the first article, too to the saints which are and then we so here we have a first verbal thing usin those are dative it's dative plural masculine in context i mean it could be neuter otherwise but that's a present participle from imi here i'm using a color coding and red indicates non-indicative moods this is for exegesis purposes purples are 
our prepositions, conjunctions, and, and connectors are green, and the pronouns are orange. And the reason why I developed this visual filter is it helps to focus our attention on important aspects of the Greek text. Certainly not every every important aspect, but on significant ones that are that are almost always fruitful for exegesis. Yeah, I think the agency is softened. It's softened a bit. Um, you can find places where it's by God directly, um, by the planning of God. Yeah, and I and I wonder if that softening allows for human response. And that's not unimportant. Like we debate these kinds of things theologically, but there there's grammar that speaks into to that. And I think this would be a, a, a case. Um, Is it possible that it's a distinction between the will of God and God Himself? Yeah. So, so God's God is differentiated from His will, His wisdom. Um, that's an interesting. And we're going to get into this because He's going to He's going to get into foreknowledge and our, our predestination pretty quickly here. And so, preordaining things. Uh, does God make everything happen that He would desire? I mean, did he, did he, did he desire for us not to fall? I would have to think that he did not desire us to fall, and yet that that did not prevent us from falling. So, um, did he know that we were going to fall? I think absolutely. So somehow God has set up the world with agencies in place, and we don't understand them all. We know that there are higher other agencies at work, um, spirits of, of some kind labeled different things. But yeah. All right, well, good questions. So to the ones, to the one, uh, to the saints. So here we have tis. Agios, which is an adjective, right? Agios is an adjective. Um, Agios, it's uh, meaning holy. Here, um, being used substantively, uh, like a noun, that means as a noun. And it's being modified by tis usin. And now we run into a problem, because in Epheso is missing from our earliest manuscripts. That's why it's in brackets. So I'm looking. We're looking at the UBS five text here, and um, you can see that uh, the textual evidence that it's in uh, the second corrector of Sinaiticus. It's uh, in Epheso is in Alexandrinus. It's in the second corrector of B Vaticanus. So those little twos there indicate the second corrector um, identified. So, and then it's in some Western texts, and then a bunch of other manuscripts. It's, um, it's got pretty wide distribution. The little, after the lex here, this indicates um, Old Latin, and so there's a lot of Old Latin manuscripts. That's important. The Vulgate, which is a little later manuscript, the Syriac, Coptic. So th those are pretty early. So you have, you have, you're starting to get some broad geographic circulation, and that's important. So these different ancient versions uh, and Western texts, Alexandrian texts, although these are corrected texts, um, you start, the broader a reading is in the textual tradition, the more, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's weightier in terms of, as long, you know, other things being considered too. So it does have early... Uh, some early uh, and versional support, which is good. But the difficulty is <laughs> it's missing in our best earliest manuscripts, three of them. 
P46, Papyrus 46, dating end of the second century, maybe early third, third century, third century. Those are our best manuscripts. So, and then you have Marcion, according to Tertullian. So, if, if that's true, that's mid second century. So you're getting you're getting pretty close now. You're within a hundred years of Paul writing this. Origin would be very early too. Yeah. So that would be uh, early third century, and he knew the tradition. Um, so yeah, you got a you got a dilemma here. So if when you do a comparison with Paul's other letters, they often include a place name right here. So this this leads to all kinds of theories. One being that this wasn't written by Paul, <laughs> or that it was written as a circular letter, and eventually was housed in Ephesus, and then that later was recognized. Uh, people will sometimes think that Paul's letters were collected in Ephesus and then this one got its name put on then. People, some people will argue that it has, something has to be there. Yeah. And that's, you know, so that, but I, I argue against that, actually. I argue against that. I don't think it grammatically has to be there because if, if that's the case, well, we have to deal with this ke. So let's let's try to translate it without the NFSO to the saints who are indeed also even faithful in Christ Jesus. So is it possible that that this is not needed and that in fact the pistis is being emphasized? Well, this caused me to start doing some research on this adjective, pistos. How important of a virtue is this? Well, I'll show you a commentary research that I did that this idea of faithfulness in Epictetus, who's writing at the end of the first century, early second, this idea of fidelity, pistis and pistos, is very important as a virtue. And in lists of virtues, like here at 2.8.27, it's listed first. Of such a character will I show myself to you, faithful, reverent, noble, unperturbed. It's also of a political virtue. It means to remain steadfast in one's commitment. So given the tenor of Ephesians, if I'm, if I'm right, uh, that it's it's a it's it's highly politically uh, um, charged. That in fact, Paul could have been stressing the faithfulness as a an act, as a as a virtue, who are to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. So I disagree with those commentators who say, "Boy, this is grammatically impossible. It doesn't it has to be something there?" I say no. Actually, it doesn't need to be there. And in fact, we, we might actually make really good sense of it um, by, by, what's, uh, by the culture and understanding the importance of it in terms of political discourse and commitment, fidelity. All right. How many uh, times does Kai use this indeed? Oh, enough. It occurs throughout. It's found that way throughout Paul's letters. So it's not the first way that I would try to translate it, but it 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 often is a way that you need to translate it. Um, and you, so you, what begins to happen here is you could begin why you can understand begin understanding why a scribe would add something because they would think that this is what was expected. You have a harder explanation of why it's not why it would have been omitted. That becomes a harder thing to argue when it's typically there. Unless it was meant to be a circular letter in which insert there. So I do think it was a circular letter, but I do also think it's stressing faithfulness. <laughs> so I think that makes sense of it. All right. Any, any, any questions? So this tus usin is a uh, attributive participle. So every, every time you come to a participle, you need to figure out what, what is it there for. And here, it's really ramping up something. 
the ones who are in. Like, this is not needed. If NFSO is there, it's not needed. You could just say the saints in Ephesus. But when you add it there, it's stressing something, and it's either stressing that locale or, as I would suggest, uh, going with earlier manuscripts, it's stressing even their faithfulness in Christ Jesus. You can identify as living in Ephesus. Well, it depends. I mean, usin means are. I mean, there's another verb that could have been used. There's umpteen verbs that could have been used for living. Really, a lot of, lot of words that could have been used. Residing, habitating, zoe, living, walking. So, yeah, it is, it is a bit more existential in that regard. And it may be idiom, idiomatic, but uh, okay. So, how about verse 2? Someone want to read verse 2? All right. Yeah, the the uh, the the ke, um, the alpha iota is simply an e, as as epsilon, ke ke, ke and de rhyme together. Ke de, yeah ke. So caris umin ke irene apotheu patros imon ke curiu Jesu Christu. So how would we translate that? Yeah, great. So grace to you. Now the common Greek reading was an infinitive, um, kerin. Kerin was the standard Greek. Was one of the one of the, the Greek readings. An infinitive. Paul seems to have converted this to a Christianized reading. Kares. And Irene. Peace is the translation of shalom, a Jewish greeting. So it's beautiful about each of these letters. And then um, I think Jude, Peter, they add mercy. I think they add like a third, third one. They're trying to outdo Paul. You know, it was one up him. Well, this is a combination of, of a converted Gentile greeting and a Jewish greeting. I love that. Multicultural. But converting, sometimes it's to convert culture, right? So in other words, culture is, 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 uh, can be kind of neutral at times, but other times it's not. And so, uh, we can, we can, uh, kind of correct or, or take, adapt culture and, and, and Christian, uh, Christianize it in a certain way. So we see Paul doing this. He's adaptive. He's adaptive and he's straddling different cultures. It's amazing that God chose him. He, you know, God in God's wisdom, you know, he. This is the kind of person that he chose. I mean, think of Moses too, right? Like highly educated in the Pharaoh's court, he chose him, and then he's responsible for the Torah and and writing that, whether he wrote it all or whatever. But he's he's a highly educated person that the Lord gets a hold of, humbles, humbles as well. Paul was had to be humbled. Uh, life humbles us at times um, terribly. And uh, so here he is, very highly educated, knowing Greek culture, knowing Jewish culture, and sent on a mission. And uh, pretty amazing. And he's, by, by greeting people this way, he's acknowledging different ethnicities. This probably has been written on, but I have ideas. <laughs> I just, I can't, I don't have time. But there really, there really could be a study, like a real thorough study on ethnicity in Paul and eth ancient ethnography. The thing is, this was an ancient topic. Like People reflected on this. In fact, our earliest history before Thucydides, Herodotus, is, is almost like an ethnographer. So in other words, he's fascinated by these cultures and is traveling and is writing these customs down, knowing that some of them are just pure, you know, mythical basis, but he's still fascinated. And then describing what people did. So ancient people are very aware of this. Um, and I could take you to probably almost every Pauline letter and show you where this is latent or explicit, his, his interest in and concern for it. I mean, just think of Corinthians where he says, you know, to the Greek, the gospel is foolishness, to the 
to the Jew. It's he's scandal. Scandal. Yeah, it's a scandalous. That's right. So he he is aware of how this is being perceived. And then there's different lists where he lists, you know, Scythians um, and Romans. He he talks about barbarians and the Greeks, Jews and the Gentiles. He's, these are all kind of ethnically charged designations. So. In fact, I have an essay on Ephesians, uh, my, my latest one on Ephesians. It's probably two years old, but it describes the church. You know, right? Ephesians ends by describing the church as donned in armor, personified as the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. Ethnicities were portrayed as women. And so here is the church personified uh, with Christ as Christ's consort. And in temples, you had, in the imperial cult, you had uh, the emperor with his consort, which sometimes was his wife, but more often Roma. Roma, the personification of the Roman people, who in other contexts is, is depicted commonly in armor. So I have this whole essay where I, I just re research this personification and what's happening in Ephesians and how that relates to the broader world. It's amazing what what Paul is capable of doing and what he was experiencing. And so the fact that he can greet people with grace and peace, um, recognizing their ethnicity. And this, uh, this grace to you and peace is apo, from God our Father. So you have theu, patros, imon. You have apposition once again, from, source origin and then god our father and the lord so from the lord jesus christ so who is the lord the lord is jesus who is the messiah or the anointed one so you've got a piling up of names and attributes of father and jesus i'm going to see that in verse three again and we just have to ask ourselves why I mean, already in these two verses, he's mentioned Christ three times, Jesus three times, and he culminates with Lord. That's significant. Right at this time, Nero, increasingly, 50s and 60s, is being called Lord. So Adolf Deisman, in the Roman Hellenism course, we're going to be reading through Deisman's book, and he notes this in the inscriptions. So, yeah, Dominus in Latin. Why is all this name-dropping occurring? I remember reading through Philippians in the first chapter, and I started counting up. I'm like, oh, my gosh, God and Father and Jesus, like the name dropping. And I, and I think this must be for formative purposes. And why? <laughs> well, because they have so many other prominent deities and or emperor figures in their mental space of divinity. So it's like imagine a folder full of divinities. They've been converted well, guess what? Their folder just doesn't go away. It's there. In fact, we could even speak about this from a neural, neurological, mental conception understanding of all those pathways that are connected and memory spaces are connected to deities. Like by default, you'd be thinking of them because so much of life was integrated with religion and politics and the merging of this all over the place. In fact, Paul, you know, Paul was so impacted by this in Athens. I mean, he must have been just struck. I, I had a similar experience uh, when I went, just in terms of, of, of how it impacted me. So I was at, uh, presented a conference in Amsterdam, registered, and the student's like, oh, you got to, you know, I was like, what are some good things to see, you know, whatever. She goes, oh, she says, you got to see the red light district. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, red light district is known for like prostitution and stuff. And uh, I'm just like, oh, okay, you know. So I said, well, I'm going to walk through it, but it's, it's going to be like 10 in the morning. <laughs> and that was bad enough. I mean, it really broke my heart. I mean, it broke my heart. I'm thinking these poor people, you know, and they're just, there's like window cases in their, you know, lingerie and stuff. It's just, ugh, grief stricken. It's like, this is not good. This is not good for people. Paul walking through Athens and literally seeing like 40 temples and shrines all over the place. How could you not walk through that and be pricked? 
So I just think it's very significant. I mean, we just read over it. We're like, oh, this is scripture. He's just, yeah. Well, for these first Christians, they needed to be formed in their mental conception of who God is. And of course, when, when God is associated with Father, who would they be thinking of? In a pagan sense, God the Father. Zeus. That's who they would be thinking of automatically. He's the Father. And he's got to fill that with new mental representations, new understanding, new everything. And that's why his letters are just like these theological powerhouses. Uh, because he's he's really striving for people's mental landscape to repopulate that. So, yeah. So let's, let's continue on here. Um, so I'm going to read. And here we're going to enter into, uh, so 1, 3 through through uh, 14 is one long sentence. It's gnarly. It's really an exercise in subordinate clauses. But we'll just stop after uh, verse 3. Eglobitos opheos et ater tu cuiunt emon isu Christu. O eblogesas emas en hase eblogia nevmatike en tus epuranius en Christu. Good, good. Yeah, it's it's uh, something that I always keep working on like stressing the right syllable so you had you had really good pronunciation but it's just a matter of a little bit of stress so pnevmatike pnevmatike at the end and then how would we start to translate that we're looking for a verb and all we have is a participle that's the only verb we have <laughs> and it's a substantive acting like a noun yeah, so there's a it's a null verb, so it's cop it's a null copula, and what we really have is just a predicate position. This is an adjective, blessed. So blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. <laughs> That's like the whole kit and caboodle right there. It's like it's all come together. See that? That's a, that's really really significant. So blessed is God. Evlogetos is a a verbal adjective, the etos ending is an old participial ending, a past passive participle, blessed, being blessed. Egapitos is another one, beloved. So this is a kind of a class of adjective that is a remnant of an old participle form. So you're going to find them on ad adjectives formed from verbs. Agapao here, evlogeo. So God is blessed. So he's in a blessed state. God is blessed. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do you notice in terms of the articles? They're there. <laughs> right. they, weren't, they, weren't they weren't before. They weren't there. So now they're there. So we're starting to get specific here. And um, so bless is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, so he's really hammering home our Lord. What's interesting about Nero inscription and Domitian is is that that's like that's how it's said, our Lord. <laughs> so this actually matches an idiom, our Lord. So our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have apposition. O evlogesas is a aorist active participle, masculine nominative singular. Uh, referring back to God, God who is also Father. And so this is explaining more about who God is. And it's, um, apposition is always significant because unless it's trying to disambiguate who somebody is, like to clarify who someone is, like you might say, you know, Joe, comma, the ma you know, the mailman, the mailman. That is like a little aside that clarifies, disambiguates. But that's, that's not what's happening here. He's not disambiguating. He's actually expanding. Well, apexegetical would refer to more like infinitive use. Here, it's, I mean, it would have a similar kind of idea. It's, he's basically particularizing how God is blessed. In fact, in terms of structural relationships, is it how God is blessed or that? He's the source of our blessing. 
Our recognition of his blessedness, I think Paul is saying, comes from the fact that he has blessed us. I think that's what's going on. He is, so God is the, the one who's, ble who's blessed us. And then how? Here we have some really a nice kind of flourish. In every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly realms, in Christ. You got three NNNs. Here the, the text really takes on a grand, it starts to take on a grand style. So is uh, that dealing with means then when you get into the in Christ? So yeah. Um, how God blesses is through the means of Christ? Yeah, except it's, it's uh, in can be used for an instrument, and here it's a personal instrument. But you're not wrong to think of means in terms of IBS, inductive Bible study. In terms of grammar, Wallace will describe this and just say this happens. It's, it's really agency, but within. And I think there's a lot at stake here because in the Roman world, uh, how have the gods blessed us? What was being proclaimed as good news, actually? And in our Ephesians class, I think today I'll show you it. So uh, I'll show you an inscription dated to like 9 BC that is announcing the good news of Augustus and him giving grace to us that surpasses all of the rulers. <coughs> and now Nero is, is come to the throne. So this is written after that. And this is like Augustus through Nero. And so, so yeah, I mean, there's this, when, you, when you're thinking of like gods and blessings in the populace's mind, the intermediary is the rule or the rulers. The earthly ruler and above them is the apothesized, divinized rulers who are real entities in their mental landscape, like physically being seen on statuary. In Corinth, in fact, in the in the in the forum, I have a whole essay on this. Where, I, where Paul says the God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers, I argue that, that the reference of the God of this age is actually to that statue of Augustus, eight foot tall, and in Latin it says to the God Augustus, in Latin. Blinding is something that political rivals did. People could outshine others. And, I, and then I, I lay out the context in Corinth, uh, first, uh, Second Corinthians, how this makes sense ideologically. So, yeah, we just have to kind of recover this understanding. And the heavenly realms were populated, people believed, with gods and, and rulers and, and uh, heroes, statesmen. Sorry, I don't know about stateswomen. I think some of them did make it in, though. Some of the imperial family were hypothesized, including women. So the men get to ride up on eagles. The women ride up on... Um, was it geese or you know something like a different kind of bird? So that that was the vehicle for for becoming a god. Um, and this is depicted on statuary and stuff. So yeah, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and that's kind of important because it's from a, a, a earth perspective, we're being beaten and killed, and that doesn't mean that we're not spiritually blessed. In fact, we may be suffering because we are spiritually blessed. Um, there may be persecution because of who we represent. Every spiritual blessing. Notice that the passé here is, I have a, a gray highlight. And, and basically what that is, is it's a filter that identifies me to numeric specifications or quantitative specifications. And I would maintain that Special attention to quantities is a, is a way of highlighting important information. And pasas, pas pasapan, is often for stress. And you could make a case for it probably almost every, every place. And sometimes it's, it's obviously, you know, maybe close to hyperbole. Right. And that's yeah. stress. Right. I need to be careful here, like, but it says, like, all of the, in Beth, Bethlehem came to see him or, you know, something like that. You might think, well, how 
you know, they were all at the door. It was like, well, how could they all? Well, if there was maybe a town of 50. They maybe could have all been at the door. Yeah, but other times it might just be uh, hyperbole. You know, like when it says all Judea and Jerusalem came out to see him. That's uh, for stress. So, yeah, so every uh, blessing spiritual. So here you have a repetition of the root evlogeo. And here evlogia. So in the heavenly realms, epiranius. And I have an essay, research essay on that, right? Where I look at that term in Philippians, where uh, if you saw my paper when I presented last year, year before, that at, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The ones in the heavens, the ones on the earth, and the ones under the earth. Those are, those are adjectives. And so I, I started researching what those referred to, and I argue that they're gods. Those are regional places for the gods. And man, there's a whole heck of a lot of evidence for that. I found magical papyri, inscriptions, a lexicographer from like the second century defining the gods in different ways of referring to the gods. And the first four regions are those regions, three that are listed there. The fourth one is the marine region. But he's writing to Philippi, which is landlocked. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a whole essay. I wrote it with Ryan Giffen, one of my students. He'll be defending this, uh, this term. Uh, so really, it's just fascinating, we, you know, this, these ideas here, the heavenly realms. In Christ, that's our political ruler. That's, that's who we are blessed in, not the emperor, not a regional king, but Christ Jesus. Okay, kathos. Sure. In Christo really don't provide a whole lot of content on what it means. We've got the words here, but it's a mm -hmm. theological question mm -hmm. that I was can answer that one. What do you think? Well, okay, that brings me back to, that's a good question. That brings me back to what I think verse 3 is doing. I got sidetracked. I was saying, in terms of structural relationships, verse 3 is... You can't change your book service, right? Those of you in my class. <laughs> okay, you turned them in. Okay, they were due at noon, weren't they, or something? No, 2.30. Oh, 2.30, okay. It's a generalizing statement. It's almost like the whole book of Ephesians is describing the particulars of how this is true. And it's, it's really quite amazing to see. Certainly, verse 14 is. But I think you can make a case that the whole book is particularizing this idea that we are blessed in Christ Jesus. So to answer your question, Gary, yeah, Christ isn't unpacked yet. <laughs> we know a few things about him, that he has apostles, that he has, he's, he's related to God the Father, that he's called Lord, and he's our Lord, that maybe he elicits faithfulness or calls he, we owe him our faithfulness, pistos, faithful, in Christ Jesus. So those are all. Oh shoot! This is There's one thing that really strikes me about the whole, this whole beginning. I think mentioning faithful brings that reciprocity idea, and then um, bless be God. Remember to bless God because of how He blesses you. And so it seems like Paul is is helping them to. Right in the beginning, remember this reciprocal relationship that you have with God. One of the things I noticed in the reading was that Paul's emphasis seemed to be on God is the source of, of all of that. So that yes. it's not us From. making right. the... Uh, God is the one that initiates. Right. Yeah, that's why we just choose. We would be the client. Yeah. So what's being evoked, you're right, is is a is a patronage system is being assumed and the gods were understood as benefactors of us and it puts us into debt obligation to those gods. In fact, that's what made sorry about this, boy, I don't know. That's what made the Christians so dangerous because they were potentially evoking the wrath of the gods by not participating in civic uh, events in favor of the gods. 
we, they could have been calling down the God's wrath because they weren't worshiping and showing uh, Eusebea worship to the gods. They weren't being pious. I mean, they're, yeah, they're in some trouble <laughs> right off the bat. Sorry, Gary. So if they don't, um, yeah, if they don't participate, they could be bringing down judgment of the gods. So from a certain worldview perspective, you know, civic authority would have to punish them. Yeah, they would have to punish them, uh, somehow discipline them or find some way that they could be remain pious. And there was a way. There was a way. But guess what that was? has to do with an umbrella. There's a safety umbrella that they had to stay under. Oh, Judaism. They had to, if they, if they stayed under the umbrella of yeah. Judaism, they're fine. Because they had, they had already <laughs> grandfathered exceptions <laughs> to this stuff. Yeah, so Jews were, were religio lucida. <clears throat> they were allowed. So... This is really a dangerous position for Christians to be in uh, across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we look at Nero. I mean, uh, my my background is very limited on the history, but um, uh, is it possible that he was considered a, a good uh, leader to historically uh, in Rome until the fire? There's it's it's mixed. Some people thought that the first years were good, then he kind of turned bad. There's debate about how soon he thought of himself as the solar deity. And people say, no, he started that pretty early on. Solar monarchy theme. I've researched some of that. But he was uh, also buffered a little by Seneca. Yeah, right? yeah. Seneca was helping to rule for a while. And then yeah. Nero uh, took the battle well, and his, and, his, end, and so. his mother, right? Yeah. And eventually got rid of her. And then Seneca was there. And then I think power, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, it's just kind of a matter of time. He, he was a crazy guy. I mean, he would, you know, enter himself in competitions and rig it so he'd win, you know, singing and, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that. So, so good question, Gary. Yeah, I think, I, well, I know that as we keep going through the text, who Jesus is is going to be filled out in, in big ways. We'll get one more verse and then we'll stop. So, kathos exalexato emas in afto pro kataboles cosmu ine emas agius ke amomus kat enopion avtu in agape. So just as. So this is a, the kathos clause here begins a substantiation and comparison. I call those correspondence clauses. So in other words, there is something about the blessing that is is explained here and supported by way of showing us by comparison what what it is some element of particularization i think is involved just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world pro cataboles cosmo to be he chose us to be or he chose that. I think this is rather a content clause that we would be. So when you think of an infinitive like that, you, you think, okay, what are, what are the possibilities for infinitives? And one is like a purpose clause, result clause, but another is simply a content clause. And so when, um, when you have, when you have the subject here, umas of the, of the copula, I think that's why we have a content clause. He chose that. We would be ine, and then you have two predicate adjectives, holy and blameless, before him in love. Pretty significant here, holiness in terms of love. Of course, there's some debate about in agape, whether that's going with to be holy or whether it's going with the next verb for ordaining us or predestining us. And that's a big question. I think the comma is properly placed here. And that has implications. So, in other words, holy and blameless in terms of love, um, in terms of our response. And in Ephesians, love is something that we're being made into. We truth to one another in love. We are to walk in love 
an imitation of him. So this is a, a virtue that is, is exemplified to us and then is expected of us. This gets into some pre-planning. We'll get in, we can think about this more next time. You know, what does it mean that he chose us, uh, elected us uh, before the foundation of the world? And I would just say that it's a corporate election, that it's an election that's based on like what he wants for us in terms of character formation. We'll talk more about this next week, but just to, for you to think about it, is that God foreknew everything, and but that's not the basis. The predestination is it's the foreknowledge that comes first, and out of that foreknowledge, he predestines and plans. It's not the opposite. It's not that he foreknows because he predestined. And I can show you this next week because in Romans, there's a particular order that he explains how this works. And it's foreknowledge first, and then he foreordains things and plans. And that's, that's, that's significant to me. It's not he predestines, and that's how he knows everything. So in my understanding, God, as he's conceiving of creation eternally, he knows that there's a possibility of a fall. And he knows what he's going to do in that contingency. And that's his, pre, that's his pre-planning. And he knows what he wants us to be, what he's chosen us to be. That's not in doubt. We're to be, we're to be like him, holy and blameless. We're to be loved just as he is pure love. That's what he's chosen us to be. That's the ideal. In fact, that's mediated through the, the creation of Christ as our prototype. Anyway, these are kind of big, big concepts, but Paul is kind of laying out this, this large view of what's happened, and we're, we're forced to kind of think about it. We'll continue next time and keep thinking, and uh, so thanks for coming. Sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.